The Interchange is brought to you by PG&E. Did you know that 20% of EV drivers in the U.S. are in PG&E service territory in Northern California? Well, the electric revolution is happening, but it can't happen with single drivers alone. So PG&E is helping to electrify corporate fleet vehicles as well. Get in touch with PG&E's EV specialists to find out how you can take your transportation fleet electric. Don't miss out. Find out more at pge.com slash gtm. That's pge.com forward slash gtm. The Interchange is also brought to you by Wonder Capital, the leading solar investment platform. Wonder gets your commercial solar projects done fast and efficiently. And if you're an investor, Wonder gets your money to projects and helps you earn up to 7.5% annually. If you want your project financed or you want to invest, sign up at wondercapital.com slash gtm. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor with GTM in Boston. Welcome. I am joined by Shil Khan, my co-host and managing director at Energy Impact Partners. He is with us from New York. Hello, Shale. Hey, Stephen. Two billion dollars. That is how much Shell New Energies plans to invest in renewables, batteries, electric vehicle charging, and other emerging tech every year. Now, that number is just a tiny fraction of Shell's oil and gas business, but it's enough money for one of the world's biggest companies to start rearranging the landscape for electrification. We've had a couple conversations on this podcast about what Shell is up to. This week, we're going straight to the source. Joining us on the show is Brian Davis, the VP of Energy Solutions at Shell. His job, to help reshape the strategy of Shell and build up new businesses around biofuels and electrification. He is with us from London. Brian, welcome. Hey, thanks, Stephen. Thanks very much for inviting me to talk to you today. So we have brought you here to help us understand the frenzy of acquisitions you are making right now. What does it tell us about where Shell thinks the world is headed? First, let's start big picture about how the new energies unit fits inside Shell. You, I know, were part of a team tasked with reshaping the strategy of Shell. And I want to know what that entailed and what the outcome was that informed the new energies unit. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Yeah, so um, prior to my current role, I was the head of corporate strategy at Shell. And um, I started that role in uh, 2014 when uh, Ben Van Burden, our current CEO, just started into his role. And at that time, we were um, helping him and the executive executive committee think through what does the long-term strategy for Shell look like um, in light of you know a changing uh, external environment? And we started by taking the energy scenario work that Shell's famous for, which projects out how the energy system might unfold through to you know the end of the century. You know, and my job was with my team to figure out how do you translate that longer-term perspective into actionable strategy. And um, that was a great role to be doing. And and at its heart, what we did is looked at. Um, what were those scenarios telling us? And we saw a couple of big trends that we thought were important for Shell. And one of them was um, the, uh, the, the growing importance of energy transitions, that the world needs more energy, it needs cleaner energy if it's going to continue to grow and people are going to prosper. And the other one was um, the uh, increased importance of digital and digitalization and what that was doing for business models and, and changing the way in which um, you know customers had greater choice, and you know you could make businesses more efficient and communicate more broadly and and, and faster. And so, new energies at its heart has two kind of core elements to it. 
One is uh, new fuels uh, and the other one is power. And the new fuels business talks about uh, low carbon uh, fuels for uh, powering uh, transportation, so moving people and goods. And the power business is very much playing into this this big trend around increased electrification uh, of the global uh, energy system. So the result of all that work then, especially in the power sector, has been a what seems on the outside, I think, to be a flurry of activity, um, more in fact than I think we even have time to discuss in detail. But let's just focus in on all the acquisitions that you guys have made since launching the new energies business. So just over the past two years or so, I count close to 10 acquisitions on the power side. And I was thinking about how do I try to group these together to make sense of them. Broadly, you've made two acquisitions of electric vehicle charging companies, one in Europe, New Motion, one in the US, which is Green Lots. And sort of side note disclosure that Green Lots was one of the Energy Impact Partners portfolio companies. Um, so we were heavily involved in that and happy to see it find a new home at Shell. But so two EV charging companies, you've bought your way into retail electricity businesses in both Europe and the US, first utility in Europe, MP2 in the US. You've bought utility scale, the majority of or the entirety of utility scale renewables developers in multiple regions globally, Cleantech Solar, which has a big presence in Southeast Asia, Silicon Ranch, which historically was primarily in the US. You've bought a microgrid developer called GI Energy, or the majority of it, a virtual power plant platform called LimeJump, and a sort of residential energy storage and to some degree solar player, largely in Germany, but with some presence in the US as well, called Sonnen. So that's a lot. And I guess my first question for you is, are you finding these companies that you're snatching up opportunistically? You're just looking around for great companies that fit in with the broader narrative of new energies, or are you actually trying to fit certain puzzle pieces together? Are you saying, well, we need an EV charging play in Europe and one in the US, and then you go off and find them? Yeah. So, um, I mean, it does sound like a tremendous flurry of activity when you kind of list it like that. And I guess for uh, me and my colleagues on the inside, it certainly uh, felt like that. I don't know if the analogy of, you know, the, the duck on the water and what you see below it, but um, certainly it's been, it's been a lot of, um, a lot of uh, work from a lot of people. Uh, the business has been around since 2016 in its current form, but Shell's been active for a bit, you know, for quite a bit longer in the space as well. Um, I think what you're seeing with these particular acquisitions here is that um, we recognize that to reach the sort of s- the scale and, um, and, and reach that we were looking for in terms of global footprint and scale, that we were not going to do that organically alone and that we needed a mix of organic and inorganic, so uh, acquiring uh, companies. And some of the thinking around when we look to acquire companies, in some cases, um, we're looking to buy people, teams and capability that we don't have in Shell. So we recognize that for us to meet customer needs of the future, we don't have all the answers. Uh, We have quite a bit to build on, but we don't have all the answers. So part of those strategies are around buying um, companies that have complementary capabilities that we can help nurture, grow, and uh, scale. So um, a number of those um, acquisitions, some of them like um, First Utility and and, uh, MP2, we're playing very close to the customer, the ability to actually have a direct relationship with the end consumer of the energy, which allows us to better understand what they need and then to develop solutions. Um, and it gave us a presence in uh, the European and US markets. The other question that I have as I'm looking across all these acquisitions that you guys have made 
is the extent to which you're optimizing for businesses that can generate a near-term profit for you versus sort of a land grab in key capabilities or key regions or something like that for long-term purposes? How are you thinking about profitability requirements for the acquisitions that you make and I guess the profitability of the new energies business in general right now? Yeah. So, um, I don't, I don't, we're not doing a land grab per se in our acquisition strategy. I think we're looking in many of these areas, companies, they're, they're young and quite nascent. So I guess when you're looking at them that, you know, in the success case, they're very significant, uh, potential businesses. Um, so in terms of um, profitability, we've um, you know we've we've indicated that we're looking to build a business that will be able to deliver eight to twelve percent equity returns. We do want this to be a commercially viable business. It needs to be a commercially viable business to be long term sustainable. Um, so I think the question around profitability depends a little bit on maturity. And so in some cases, we've acquired companies like um, First Utility in the UK, which had been going for um, eight plus years. And so that was more mature and ready to scale. And other companies are relatively young and so are still in that sort of rapid growth phase. And so each one of them has a pathway to profitability. It's just at different times. And in aggregate across all the activities we're doing, we're looking to um, build you know, a business that's uh, profitable um, and, uh, so, and in generating stable cash flows over time. The big question I have is on the behind the meter stuff and and the customer focused retail activity. So Shell's comfortable operating in a commodity business. It, a lot of the big oil majors have long been involved in electricity trading. They have large trading desks. All of that makes sense. But what seems to be unique here is the acquisition of a company like Sonin that has long talked about behind the meter peer to peer electricity sales. Um, aggregated battery storage for communities or for selling services into the grid. Your recent acquisition of First Utility gets you access to an offering for over 700,000 homes in Britain and gives you an opportunity to offer a variety of renewable electricity offerings and smart home offerings. That to me feels very unique. So what does that tell us about Shell's desire to get closer to the consumer within the electrification strategy? Maybe it's an underappreciated um, factor about Shell, about how big an, a retailer we are today. So most people associate Shell with being an oil company because you know that's what you see when you drive past a fuel station maybe. But actually today Shell's already a larger gas company than an oil company in terms of our production mix. But an important part of our history is that we are a large fuels retailer around the world. And so from a customer and marketing point of view, we've been very um, active in marketing directly to consumers for a long period. And I think we have something in excess of uh, 40,000 fuel stations around the world that carry the Shell brand, um, over 30 million visitors a day. And we're very significant in terms of uh, loyalty programs, cards, and, and, and elements like that. Um, so... What we're, what we're looking to do is to expand the brand, which is very strong. So Shell's um, brand presence and brand value is one of the strongest and most valuable brands in the world. And we think that that can actually be relevant for um, consumers in their home. 
And just recently here in the UK, we, we rebranded the former first, first utility into Shell Energy Retail. And uh, we've actually now overnight switched um, 700,000 homes from uh, their fr from basically to 100% renewables, with electricity rather, which is part of our value proposition. So when we, we basically changed the brand to Shell, we offered all our customers 100% renewable electricity as standard. And we're also uh, offering them a suite of smart home solutions, starting from maybe the more easier entry level of you know smart thermostats that control your heating remotely. And then clearly over time, we can offer an electric vehicle charger. If, if you have an electric vehicle and the Sonnen product can come in and offer uh, the benefits of um, energy storage if you have uh, on-site solar or you need backup power. So we're offering all of that as packages to meet the needs for our customers under the Shell brand here in the UK. That relates to a question that I was going to ask, which is I was, I was trying to look at this list of acquisitions that you've made, especially the behind the meter stuff and thinking, okay, so what's missing now from that portfolio? See if I can predict what is coming next. And it feels to me like you've got, assuming that you take the companies that you've acquired and scale them up globally, so setting aside the, the geographic reach part, you've got most of the major ground covered now. You've got you know EV charging, you've got um, behind the meter storage, Sonnen also can do behind the meter solar, I believe. So you've got that, you've got microgrids, um, you've got retail. The thing that felt like it might be missing to me was the sort of energy efficiency, load control and demand response universe, where ideally, if you want to control all the flexibility behind the meter, you want to have access to that as well. It sounds like you're already doing that a little bit, at least through first utility in the UK. So is that an example of an area where it is equally of interest to you, but you think you can build it organically? Yeah, so I think it's maybe it's a good point to um, introduce the fact that, you know, as I said before, we don't expect to be able to do all of this alone. And part of our part of our intention and our strategy is to collaborate and partner with industry leaders. And in areas like um, demand response and load control and some of those, um, you know, we don't need to own the companies. There are some companies that we felt would make sense for us to own because they were important capabilities or footprint, as I mentioned before. But elsewhere, we've actually partnered with industry leaders. And, and a good example is in the US. Um, together with uh, MP2, we launched a product which we called Shell Energy Inside. But effectively, what that is, is we're offering customers an energy efficiency upgrade that's delivered through um, GridPoint, who's a well-known uh, participant in the US in, in doing that. And then we use SparkFund to help uh, finance it. So we can basically bring together you know, two industry leaders in Spark, Spark Fund and GridPoint and combine that into a solution that's easy for the customer when um, MP2 goes to the customer and says, if you do all of this, you, know, you get the outcome you want. And then we're basically partnering and, and creating a channel for our um, partners to go to market. And we have some other examples in other parts of the world where we're looking to do something similar. So I think I'd probably say around, you know, what's missing or not missing. I think we've got quite a lot to get on with, uh, with sort of putting all those bits together and scaling them and continuing to work with uh, partners and leaders uh, to give basically the customers what they want, which is something that's sort of simple, affordable and reliable. Coming up, how is Shell going to integrate all these businesses strategically and culturally? Plus, what are the biggest risks to Shell's strategy? First, though, let's talk about our supporter, PG&E. Now is the time to begin electrifying your fleet. 
And if you're in PG&E service territory, you can take advantage of limited-time incentives. Get educated, gain access, and make the smart choice to take your fleet electric. PG&E provides substantial financial, logistical, and construction support for all the electrical infrastructure needed to charge a customer's fleet. And with new commercial EV rates from PG&E, fueling your fleet just became simpler and likely cheaper. Get in touch with one of PG&E's specialists to learn more about electrifying your fleet or head on over to pge.com slash gtm. That's pge.com slash gtm. And if you are an enterprise customer looking for solar, well, look no further than Wonder Capital. Wonder can help you, the enterprise or the commercial solar developer, get financing for your project. And if you're adding other things like storage, Wonder can help there too. Through its innovative underwriting platform, Wonder's financing 100 kilowatt to 5 megawatt solar PV projects. That includes projects for nonprofits, community solar developments, virtual net metering, and PV plus storage systems. To find out how Wonder Capital can help you finance your next commercial solar project, head on over to wondercapital.com slash GTM. The big question for me in the sort of near future for you is how Shell is going about integrating all these businesses. Suddenly you have nine plus startups that are a part of Shell. How do you think about integration both strategically and with questions like, branding, rebranding as Shell, not rebranding, integrating them together, and culturally, right? Many of these companies are very small and entering an extremely large company. So how how big a challenge do you think integration is going to be? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's a really critical bit to get right, of course, because, you know, you've, you, the value is only delivered over the coming years. And, um, you know, the successful integration is, is critical to that. Um, we've, we've basically decided that uh, some of these companies we're keeping as sort of operationally intact and um, they continue to run on their own systems and and with their own sort of you know culture as it were but we overlay the essential elements of uh, you know control and compliance and some of the things that are necessary um, to make sure they're strong viable businesses so we're getting the balance right between not insisting you know on day one now you're fully ripped apart and you know just embedded into the organization but rather preserve the company so they can continue on um, their own individual missions. And and so that's the first bit around sort of, you know, supporting them so they can grow successfully. And then the next bit is that we don't want to leave them as standalone entities. They they should get value by being part of the, you know, part of Shell and, and part of the greater whole. And so that comes through um, being clear on where there is value in, in integration, say, for example, with um, Shell Energy Retail here in the UK, the former first utility, which has a relationship with consumers, then it can offer a new motion charger and or a Sonon battery to its customers, and you get clearly a, a cross-sell there. Um, likewise, uh, between you know, uh, LimeJump as a VPP platform and the rest of Shell, you know, we can help it uh, grow its customer base and be able to sort of take on uh, larger contracts by being part of the Shell family. What are the biggest risks to this strategy as you start acquiring or partnering with more companies? I'm curious, what would present problems in trying to execute this strategy or integrate these companies? Um, is it regulation? Is it just the business models not working the way you intended them to? Is it that there's not a proper culture fit within Shell and it's not part of your core business or you're not executing it in the way that you thought you might. How do you think about the risks 
in the medium term as you start integrating more of these companies? It's difficult to figure. It's difficult to know what the market will be in two to three, four years' time because it's changing very rapidly. So I think critical will be to keep a certain amount of agility and the ability ability to adjust and pivot. And you know, some business models won't work. And we've got you know we've 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 seen our, our own experiences. You know, you try things, they don't work, and you try again. And when you get the right one, you scale it. So I think maintaining that agility to continue to sort of adapt to the changing external environment and keep focused on meeting customer needs. One of the things that I find interesting about the strategy that you all have undertaken so far is that the the areas that you've gotten into are largely the same ones that you see other investors and other large players in the power sector going after, all this behind the meter stuff, electrification of vehicles, utility scale renewables. But on the outside, you know, when I've thought about, so what are the um, unique capabilities and the particular strengths that companies like Shell, the super majors have, if they're to enter the power business, one of the big ones to me seems to be Shell and other super majors are very used to making very large capex, very long time horizon investments, and then reaping the rewards of those over decades. And in the case of sort of new energies, I could imagine a few different ways that you could leverage that. You could take long time horizon bets on technology, so you could get deeply involved in very long duration energy storage or next generation nuclear. You could take on really big capital projects like trying to build out high voltage transmission or trying to build new hydropower where there's still hydro capacity available. We don't see so much of that stuff yet what it seems like you're going after now is are the things that are sort of in existence that can be deployed and scaled up um, faster and I'm curious whether you think it's true that companies like Shell have a unique capability to take those long time horizon bets and if so how do you think about participating in those I mean it is it is true that um, we are we are a company that has a history of taking you know long view on on how the energy system unfolds and maybe a classic example is the current LNG business liquefied natural gas business was essentially one that uh, Shell helped create through you know the very first um, LNG ship and the first uh, LNG trains back in sort of 1950 1960 and that business grew over multiple decades you know maybe 50 years into a business that was generating you know a significant amount of Shell's profitability and there are other examples where, as a company, we, we've been able to innovate at scale around the world. Um, and we, have, we are able to take kind of a long-term view. That's true. I think what's interesting is that um, it's probably worth also, when we talk about power, Shell has a, a long history in power and a lot of capability to leverage. We started trading power in North America in the early 2000s. And our Shell Energy North America business is one of the largest uh, wholesale power traders in North America today. So we actually have a significant presence um, in the power business already. Uh, and likewise, if we just consider our industrial operations around the world, our oil and gas and um, you know, chemicals and, and depots and re retail sites, you know, I think we're in excess of you know, 10 gigawatts of power generation. So we, we operate a lot of power generation assets on LNG plants and oil platforms and what have you, which are high reliability microgrids. We have a whole team of people who are the you know, utilities department who, who manage those assets. So there's a lot of operational capability in the organization that we haven't sort of thought of through that lens. It's rather been an enabler for our business. So 
I think that becomes important when you maybe go and talk to in other commercial and industrial customers and offer them an energy solution and say, we've done this to our own operations. We've been applying this technology, this methodology to reduce our energy consumption and or reduce the carbon intensity. And I think that will play well with a number of customers who want somebody who kind of knows their business a bit and has sort of got some operational footprint as well. So I think there's a lot more more maybe to the businesses than maybe meets the eye at first look. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess I'm still wondering, though, will we see Shell take on some of these big, long-term, intractable problems that, you know, electrification or decarbonization face? The need for baseload or um, shoulder resources and high renewable penetration grids, the need to transmit electricity from one region to another, these, these things that you know, will have to get solved uh, eventually and that, you know, the current system seems to be somewhat poorly set up to to solve. Yeah, so um, we might not be the the natural best players for doing some sort of, you know, long distance, high voltage transmission type play. But if you look at the energy system more broadly and, and just zoom out from just um, just the electricity piece, another area of long-term potential in the energy system is hydrogen and hydrogen as an energy carrier. And there's a lot of conversation about at, at some stage in the future, solar generation will be cheap enough and electrolysis will be cheap enough that you could do large-scale generation of hydrogen, you know, for example, my home country of Australia or, you know, Middle East or any sunny place. And then you ship the hydrogen to uh, parts of the world where you've got dense urban, urban populations that need power. You know, think about, you know, all the big mega cities of Asia you know, being powered with imported clean hydrogen. And to bring all that to bear, you need to solve not only how do I make electrolysis, you know, come down the cost curve for electrolysis, which we're doing through our long-range research on, on those sorts of technologies, but also we're working with a consortium of Japanese players to look at shipping of liquefied hydrogen. And so Shell's operating the ships that will be built to test what does it take to ship liquid hydrogen around the world as maybe the next generation, um, you know, clean energy molecule. What about biofuels? Where do biofuels fit into the picture? And what kind of biofuels are you investing in and exploring? Uh, we, we've, I think the conversation has shifted a little bit more toward hydrogen production as everyone looks at cheap renewables that you can overbuild and produce hydrogen with. And biofuels over the last 15 years have been a serious laggard. We've seen a lot of investments not turn out the way uh, companies and investors planned. So what is interesting to you in biofuels and how does it stack up against the electrification strategy, which seems to be coming more important for you and for many other companies? Yeah, so um, biofuels is a really essential part of the new fuels part of new energies. So in new fuels, we're talking about solutions for um, low-carbon solutions for mobility, biofuels, hydrogen, and electric vehicles. So all three of those different fuel choices, you know, we'll make available to our customers. Um, Shell's been in biofuels for a long time, um, been a significant um, in, in the R&D trying to come up with next-generation biofuels. Today we have in Brazil, a joint venture which produces a significant amount of biofuels in a, in a sustainable way from uh, sugarcane, which is one of the sort of most uh, low-carbon first-generation uh, biofuel options. And that, that sort of supplies the Brazilian market. And, and our, our 
our joint venture in Brazil has also started um, developing some second generation biofuels where you you don't take the um, and that maybe explain the terminology. The first generation is normally where people go and ferment the sugars in the um, the, the material, the biomass. But if you go for the um, the cellulose and the non sugar the non sugars and turn those into hydrocarbons, that's technically quite challenging. Um, and what we've managed, what the team has managed to do, is do some second generation um, ethanol production in the facilities in Brazil. We're also investing in, in investing in a number of technologies, which we hope will have the promise to bring either waste to biofuels or other forms of um, you know, biomass input and create a biofuel. And why is this important? Back to your question around electrification. You know, I think it's fair. It's most people generally assume that small passenger journeys will be electrified, so the electric vehicle will win for the small, short-distance passenger journey. But when you get to sort of heavy-duty transport, aviation, some of those um, applications, our belief is that biofuels is, you know, hydrocarbons derived from biofuels are probably a, a, a good way, you know, one of the lowest cost ways to decarbonize that sector. So we think biofuels will play a role, but they'll have, um, by their nature, they have a certain limited ultimate production. So they should go to where they're most needed most, which is some of those applications I mentioned. I want to circle back around to the power business and to the value chain. As you mentioned before, Shell has been pretty explicit publicly, and it sounds like privately as well, in talking about the the power business sort of mimicking how Shell looks in the oil and gas business, which is vertically integrated, right? From, from all the way upstream to all the way downstream, basically. And as I look at the power business that you've got today, I think it looks a little bit more like a barbell at the moment, which is to say you're involved on the wholesale side, both through developing utility scale projects um, of renewables and power trading. And then you're increasingly very involved on the retail and customer side, both through actually selling retail power and offering all these behind the meter solutions to customers. What's missing currently is the step in the middle, which is transmission distribution, the sort of incumbent utilities territory, which to my knowledge, Shell hasn't done yet. There's been some reporting of the possibility of Shell bidding on um, the acquisition of Aneco, which is a, a Dutch utility. But I'm curious how you think about that part of the business, the lines and wires, the actual transmission of electrons. Is that a business that Shell needs to be in in order to fulfill this vision? And if so, what might that look like? I don't think the um, transmission and distribution business is a business we need to be in. And in in the markets where they've been unbundled, which is you know the competitive markets where you've unbundled transmission and distribution from generation and retail, they tend to be uh, regulated, and there are quite a lot of um, you know um, regulatory you know. Um, parameters around that particular business and it often also translates into a regulated um, returns as well and so from our broad um, strategy perspective we see generation uh, trading and optimization and the customer facing activities as as essential components for building the integrated value chain and then I think really transmission and distribution is somewhat of a choice now we're not saying we'll never do it. It's just it's probably more on a case-by-case basis, which is much the same as what we've done in other businesses in the past as well, where certain, infra- at times, infrastructure can make sense, but it's really more of a choice versus an imperative. 
I'd like to get your thoughts, Brian, on the shifting competitive landscape. In the last three or four years, we've seen some pretty extraordinary activity from the largest multinational energy companies in the world, many of them based in Europe. Uh, Companies like Shell, Centrica, EDF, Enel, Total, they're all making pretty big acquisitions, either in specific technologies or in a suite of companies to get them closer to the business model that you've been describing in this interview. So it feels to me like there's this new crossover between some of the uh, competitive power providers and the traditional oil and gas companies. And as that evolves, how does the competitive landscape evolve for a company like Shell? Yeah, so I think um, if you look at what's happening to the energy system, I think the energy system is fragmenting and interconnecting and changing quite dramatically. In, in the past, you know, you had a quite a clear split from, you know, a traditional utility that would do the generation, push it through the poles and wires to the to the customers, and you know, we were doing the refueling of mobility, and there was a gas chain. And more and more now, with you know something as as obvious as an electric vehicle. You know, you'll have a lot of choices to where you refuel your electric vehicle in the future. So I think um, it's it's it makes a lot of sense that all the players are looking at where they start from and what their strategy should be, so that they can continue to be relevant going forward. So um, I think it's understandable from the sort of macro point of view that there's a lot more competition, um, and I think that's okay because the 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 bigger op- the bigger opportunity and indeed the bigger challenge is. How do we solve this problem at a global scale? And that is you know, a trillion dollar per annum type problem to invest in the industry. Um, and that won't be done by any one company alone. And I think, you know, a good amount of healthy competition, you know, providing it's with level playing fields, you know, healthy competition, people trying to you know, deliver customer needs that'll drive innovation and, uh, you know, and, and we'll get there faster, which is good for the customers, the planet and, and everybody. So last question for you. Um, maybe think forward, say, 20 years. What does Shell New Energies look like at that point in your ideal summation? And what does it look like if it, things don't go according to plan? Yeah, so what does it look like, um, you know, in 20 years' time is, is, is a good question. And maybe that's an area where um, if we're successful, we'll have a very... Um, a very sort of significant uh, business that's uh, generating and selling um, low carbon energy to uh, people around the world, and and we want that as part of uh, Shell's commitment to reduce its uh, net carbon footprint of its products. Uh, uh, um, last year, our CEO announced that uh, Shell wants to reduce the the, the uh, carbon intensity of the fuels that it sells to people, and part of that strategy is to offer more and more customers choice for you know lower carbon energy solutions. And to do that at a scale that is relevant and meaningful for Shell means we need to have a very significant uh, power business. I think our um, our director, Martin Wetzler, was quoted as saying, you may be one of the biggest power businesses in the world. So if you look out through the 2040 timeframe that you mentioned, you know, we could well have, you know, a very big power business uh, operating in multiple markets around the world. And of course, we'd see ourselves being relevant in the other areas of low carbon fuels for mobility. At that time, many people will be driving electric vehicles, hydrogen vehicles, and um, you know a lot of these technologies will have come to bear. 
And uh, I would imagine at that time that Shell's still playing a role um, meeting customers' needs uh, for their energy. Brian Davis is the VP of Energy Solutions at Shell. He joined us from his office in London. Brian, thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Shell. If you have some commentary on how Shell is doing, where you think this competitive landscape is going, hit us up on Twitter at Interchange Show. You can find Shell there. You can find Interchange there. You can find me and Shell there. Brian, can we find you on Twitter? No. <laughs> that was a great intonation. <laughs> that's probably that's probably for the best for you. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's fine. LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Find Brian on LinkedIn. Uh, tell us what you think about where the global energy system is headed and where the large oil and gas majors are going to play in this world. I'm Stephen Lacey with Shale Khan. This is the Interchange Conversations on the Future of Energy from Green Tech Media. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>